First Kings chapter 11. This, this is a big chapter. We're not going to get it all this evening. It's big because of what's going on in our relationship to God, our understanding of God, our purpose in life. It, it all sort of just lands right here. The title of this evening's message is Trampling the First Commandment. And I, the value to the seasoned believer on such a consideration is to take this to the world, to be stirred up at a midweek study, and you are armed with a theme should God bring someone your way to share Christ. Rule number one with God. Don't honor non-existent gods. Don't put them in front of me. And God is everywhere. That means don't, you can't put them anywhere. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's not talking about in sequence or order. You know, you can have God and then you can have another God. Not, when he says not before me, he doesn't mean it that way. He means that I don't want them put in front of me. And, of course, God sees everywhere. Verses 1 through 8 tell us about the women that Solomon turned to. Now, he turned from God to them. And he sought to kind of uh, figure out a way to make both, them both work. Verses 9 through 43, the adversaries that turned on Solomon because Solomon had turned from God. And hopefully we'll get that next session. Um, I always feel like when I say next session, we, we might not be here for the next session. There's always that chance of rapture. And I want to just comfort you with these words. I will teach you in heaven the continuing sections. <laughs> you know, Lord's be so busy doing other things that I figure... <laughs> so tell me, what happens? In, anyway, I want to introduce this through Ezekiel the prophet who is sort of uh, one of the un unsung prophets of the Bible. I, I don't know why he doesn't get more recognition. There's so much in that he's a weirdo prophet in some ways, but he, he delivers the point uh, every time. Uh, so anyway, uh, one of my favorites, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. He gets a vision. God is giving him a vision. They come to, they gathered before Ezekiel, the captives, there in um, Babylonian captivity, and they gather before him, and God gives him this vision while they're there. So he, uh, and part of the vision comes to the events that are taking place on the Temple Mount, where the house of God is in Jerusalem. Of course, it's they're removed from it as, as captives. The temple has not yet been destroyed. Ezekiel says, so he brought me to the door of the north gate of Yahweh's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And this is, uh, he's devastated. He says, to my dismay. It was devastating. He understood the value of the women in the home and therefore the kingdom. He understood that if the devil taught the women, the women would infect the children, and thus the kingdom. Uh, here, these women were weeping over this fake God that uh, 
according to the doctrine of that God, he died in the wintertime, but he would revive in the springtime and bring with it, you know, the, 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 the fruits and the harvest and all these, these uh, things that uh, everybody, you, you have to live with, live by. But he wasn't finished. Seeing the women worshiping this fake God, weeping over, oh, he's dead, he's gone, but he'll, he'll rise again, kind of a, a bogus resurrection uh, that Satan had uh, infused many of the pagans with. And that's not the only God that was like that. Anyway, he continues in verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of Yahweh's house. And there at the door of the temple of Yahweh, between the porch and the altar, between the place of sacrifice and the entrance to God's presence, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of Yahweh and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Well, you know, an agrarian society, uh, they lived off of the land and the sun and the crops and all these things it was life support for them. But they worshipped the, the created things and they bypassed the creator. Trampling the first commandment at God's house. Well, Solomon is the one that really imported this stuff. I mean, Saul tried to put all of the which is out of Israel, and then he goes to one towards the end of his life out of desperation. Even Saul did not import this, not on nowhere near the scale that we're going to find Solomon does in this chapter. And I'm, I'm approaching this as though you're already, uh, you know what kind of an uh, uh, sort of idolatry he brought into the house of God. Men were, Ezekiel knew, men were the first line of defense. And they weren't defending. They were doing the devil's work by trampling the first commandment. Again, Ezekiel chapter 8. Now the 17th verse. Yahweh speaking to him. Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. This is what the unbeliever needs to hear. You can't make up God. You cannot choose how you worship God without consequence. The ruins of a godly king, Solomon. This is what he leaves behind in this 11th chapter. Just a pile of ruins after all God had built in this man. And now it's all just rubble. This is one of the great one of the great sad and disappointing chapters in all the scripture. At this point in Solomon's life, we are repulsed by what we find. He opened Israel's borders to idolatry, even subsidizing their shrines. Evidence to prosecute Solomon was overwhelming. If you were going to prosecute him for being for, for importing idolatry, it would have been no case. There would have been no defense. But he was at the top and nobody was going to challenge him. How can one so wise and blessed and loved by God fall so horribly? You, you have to ask yourself that question when you consider this 11th chapter. Well, he was weakened by wealth and luxury. That's, that's true, but that's not all of it. 
He was ensnared by the talent that he had because he exercised that talent without spiritual devotion. He exercised just the the intelligence, the wisdom that God gave him without God. He reached a point where I got this on his own, leaving us aghast and repulsed at the pile of ruined blessings. And that's, that's it right there. Like Samson who was sort of the counterpart, you know, he was the, the, the athletic type, the athletic celebrity, and Solomon is the billionaire celebrity. Uh, both of those men are great enigmatic characters. You just are perplexed by them. How could, how could Samson be so stupid? How can Solomon be so idolatrous? Listen, Listen to First uh, Kings chapter 3. And Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at high places. So it was there early on. But he, he restrained it. He kept it under control. Until later, later in life, he removed the restraints and he sought to make a deal, a bargain. Well, that's how he began to live. You know, I'll marry this one and I'll have peace with that kingdom and I'll marry. And and he began to become, you know, the art of the deal. Nothing wrong with that in its proper place. There's something very wrong with that in the place of God, in the house of God. It's not about making a deal. It's about obeying God, which is hard enough. And that the Bible proves that throughout. Still, with that prayer, and Solomon loved Yahweh. Maybe you've heard, yeah, but I know they love the Lord. Yeah, they love the Lord, but they may be just messing everything up. Maybe they shouldn't love him so much and we can fix them. I say that sarcastically. Still, Solomon, here he is, loving God. God could not give Solomon or anyone else their free will. He will not do that. He will not force us, again, contrary to the silly doctrine of Calvinism that so many intellectual, wise men, or smart men, not so much wise, intelligent men, godly men, drink that Kool-Aid. God could not force him to obey. God influenced Jonah, but he never forced him. He would have saved the fish indigestion if he could just force him, but he did not. Alexander White was a great Scottish preacher. And he writes, I wish I could speak like this. He, he probably spoke this way. And I'm sure he rolled his R's because those Scottish preachers did. If ever a ship set sail on a sunny morning, but all that was left of her was a board or two on the shore that night, that ship was Solomon. In other words, he started out so nicely, a sunny morning, And by nightfall, he was shipwrecked. And that is his life. That is true. But because of his contributions to Scripture in the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, which is so greatly misunderstood, I think, because of of these contributions and the prophecies associated with his life, I believe Solomon is in heaven. However, there's more to it. 
he has left us with this heartbreaking debate. He's made it debatable. It's not like, oh, absolutely. It's, well, I believe he's in heaven. Here's why I believe that. And someone can come on, well, I don't believe he's in heaven. Here's why I believe that. And, and it is a viable argument. If ever it was said over a soul where sin abounded, grace did much more, I believe Solomon would be that man. He was saved, but so as by fire. Paul talks about that in his Corinthian letter. Misspent blessings. That would have been a good title, but not. it's too weak. It doesn't capture the ruin that he imported. From God's end, God could have been saying, you know, somebody's going to import the wickedness. And Solomon, he's going to do it. But it'd be better if Solomon do it than someone else because it might even been worse. We don't know. We can only speculate on these things. I try to lean towards grace because God has been so gracious to me. That's my motivation for not bulldozing people into hell. Oh, he's in hell. He's going to hell. That's it. Some people say it almost as like, you know, they're going to hell, I'm not going to hell, and that's a good thing. And that's, it's a good thing you're not going to hell, but it's not a good thing they are. And we need to temper our judgment. Who, who wants to be a little self-righteous, annoying? If I have not love, I am annoying. That's what God says. And he goes on to say, if you have not love, you're nothing. And that ought to cool our heels a little bit to stick by what God's word says without being too aggressive in our condemnation of others. I think it's pretty easy. A person doesn't admit that Christ is Lord and Savior, died for their sins, and they are sinners in need of the Savior, and that's the only one. They're going to hell. By the, but that, that's just that, that's clear. But Solomon, let's open him up a little bit more, open up his the story, because there are other little twists and turns. So... Um, be ready to be nauseated a little bit. Verse 1. Oh, look at that. I didn't push the timer. Okay, we start now. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Some of you weren't there for Dick Tracy, and you just, you're just never going to be the same now. Anyway, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Why did Solomon have all these women? Because he could. Uh, that, that's why. Because it impressed the men of the world, the men around him. Uh, there's not just one reason why. Well, he did it to make deals. That's part of it. But there's a whole lot, of, there's a lot more to it. Only a desire to center the life on God could have protected him from this getting out of control. And by centering his life on God, the word of God would have had to have been part of that. This is why God said to the kings, you need to write a copy of the law with your own hand. Write it down. This book of the law shall not depart from you, God told Joshua. You shall meditate in it day and night. Then you'll have good success versus carnal success. Anyway, uh, he did not keep God the central uh, force in his life, and therefore the protection wasn't there. He put the kibosh on devotion in his own life. This is going to show up in the life of his only named son, Rehoboam. 
because he was wiser than Moses in his head, he excused himself from the commandments Moses delivered. I believe that's a big part of it. I believe he felt, you know, he just, I am pretty smart. I've not met anybody who can outthink me. And he factored out God. He was wiser than all, but he wasn't spiritual. It's not enough to be anything without the spirit. And it's not enough to be spiritual and a dummy and everything else either. Imagine if you were just very spiritual, but you drove on in the wrong side of the road. I mean, that would be, just, I mean, that's, anyway. First Kings chapter 3, verse 12. Behold, Solomon speaking, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise, uh, God speaking to Solomon, wise and understanding heart. So that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. I'm going to make you so smart that no one's going to ever be as smart as you. Spiritually, though, he became a dummy. Daniel, Daniel was as righteous, more so. And certainly wiser than Satan. In fact, every believer is wiser than Satan. I'm not talking about in doing evil. Satan, and Paul said, I wish that you were you know, ignorant in doing evil, but wise in doing good. We're wiser than Satan because we don't rebel against God like Satan. Lucifer, I'm talking about. Because when we say Satan, we mean all the enemy realm of this, in the spirit world. But to single it to the down to the narrow it down to their leader, Lucifer himself. Daniel, as I mentioned, is held up by God again by the prophet Ezekiel, which which shows the influence that Daniel had. Daniel was alive in those days, and he had such an influence that God spoke to Ezekiel about the people, and he says to the people through the prophet, "Behold, well, he's speaking actually to the king of Tyre." And much of what he says to the king of Tyre is applicable intentionally to Satan himself, but also to the king, a, a dual application, and to anybody else who wants to line up on that, uh, on that side of the, of the road. Behold, are you wiser than Daniel? There is no secret that can be hidden from you. So Daniel was just so, you know, God he was so spiritually uh, in tune with God that it stands out even to the great prophet Ezekiel. Well, Solomon was not wise spiritually. That's the point. He may have been smarter. He was smarter than Daniel. He could beat him in a spelling bee. He just could not carry out the righteousness like Daniel could. And God wouldn't speak to Solomon anymore like he spoke through Daniel. Daniel's prophecies are unfolding for uh, before us to this day. Well, that's... Some of what was going on, we have this really intelligent man who spiritually let himself drift away and all he was left with was the one leg of intelligence without the spiritual. Paul, Paul was intelligent and he was spiritual. Peter, what he lacked in intellectual prowess, he made up for with his spirituality, his closeness to God. It says here in verse 1, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. And it was, he, met, he married many foreign women. 
and as well as he singles out now Pharaoh's daughter. And this is the last of five references to that marriage. The historian just really, I, he writes as though he's just irritated with Solomon sometimes. I, I get that sense. And how could he not be? Solomon built a, a house for Pharaoh's daughter, this princess whom he married, giving her a special status and privilege. And of course, it became the court for, for his wives. I just think about, just in ancient Israel, when Jesus lived, what, what did people do with the trash and human waste? I mean, what, what, I mean, what did things look like then? And so you imagine this giant complex would have required uh, an army to support, to keep it clean. And, and the Jews were known to be clean. Uh, it was baked into the, the scripture. Uh, this was a... a, a, a to have 800 wives, likely all of them, living in Jerusalem because you just couldn't let them go out far away and then other people target them and you become hostages and just things like that. So this was a significant complex and the, the Pharaoh's daughter, she was the queen. Right? But she's not called. That no, None of the women in Israel were referenced as queens until we get to Athaliah and that's a whole dumb story. But uh, this marrying this Egyptian princess was going back to Egypt, another step away from the Lord, because the kings were not supposed to do this. He secured this bride from, e from Egypt, and uh, thinking he's going to better establish a, a relationship with the Pharaoh, uh, he's patting himself on the back. It was really a, a mil the might, the military, that kept the peace. Solomon's thinking it's his wheeling and dealing. Yeah, well, if you take away your chariots and, and your, your cavalry and your troops, your treaties are nothing. They just, you know, they're not arrow-proof. So uh, his father, David, had written, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. Well, David trusted in chariots and horses, well, he was whatever weapons he had available, but not without the Lord. Solomon does it a little differently, and it shows up. He wanted horses so he could not only have them for his military, but so that he can engage in trade to bring in revenue. So he thinks, he's thinking, this is pretty good. I can buy these uh, you know, Arabian horses. I can buy these other horses and, and sell them, for, make this profit. And I can also build up a stronger military. Our horses will be superior to their horses. And the chariots, of course, um, that was the mechanized army that he had during that day. And so these actions reveal Solomon's doubts about God, but his confidence in himself. So I, I can do better than God. Now, if you walked up to Solomon and said, can you do better than Yahweh? Of course he would say, no, I cannot. But that's not how he lived. He lived as though he could, because he's breaking the, the, these cardinal rules, as we would say, given to the Jewish people, particularly the Hebrew kings, by Moses, whom he thought he was evidently, thought he was smarter than. All of this, to me, is something that is relevant today. People who have a lot of money, you know, again, if you have a lot of money, uh, people think you, you know everything, I guess. You can tell them about anything. After all, you, you figured out how to get money. Well, some people, that's all they can do is get money and keep it, and not a lot more. I mean, what's the, the stock guy? Oh, I don't want to say his name, and don't say it, but... He's all about making money. He writes books to tell you how to make money so he can make more money, selling the books. But I, I bet you he can't fix a flat tire. 
I, I bet he probably can't even, you know, can, can he bake a cake? There's a lot of things he can't do, but he's very rich. And he said, well, he can outsource it. <laughs> he hires somebody to do it. Yeah, but that's not the point. The point is that people who have a lot of money don't know everything. And Solomon, he knew a lot more than everybody else, and he didn't handle it the right way. Egypt represents bondage of the old life, the old world. And the wilderness that the Jews experienced pictures the consequence of doubting God after coming out of the bondage. After seeing God work and then doubting God, the consequence was the wilderness. Well, Solomon, he saw God work, but he doubts God and he begins to break the commandments thinking that somehow he's an exception. He's entitled to do this. Entitlement is a very sneaky thing. People visit this church think that they are entitled to do things their way. And they're quite, quite shocked when we say, you're crazy. <laughs> what do you think this is? But this, I'm just, I'm, and good people, I'm not questioning them, but it's just, it, I don't, it's just something that can happen very, you're just not even conscious of it. And for Solomon, I don't, I don't know to what degree he was conscious of it, but I know he did it. They wandered. And they failed to lay hold of the inheritance that God had, that generation had for them. It says here, the women of the Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites. And that's not even an exhaustive list. Well, these are the surrounding kingdoms. The forbidden marriages are explicitly recorded in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua, Judges. They show up in Ezra and Nehemiah. And yet, to this day, we have Christians that want to marry an unbeliever. And you say, listen, this is explicitly forbidden in the New Testament, we're talking. If it wasn't in the New Testament, maybe, you know, but it is in the New Testament. This is not wise. And they do it anyway. And uh, that doesn't mean we should judge them and hold them for, you know, for accountable. It's just, but you cannot support that. You cannot say this is obedience. You can say it's disobedience. And I know it's tough. You're growing up, you're young, you think that um, you're going to make the difference and be the exception, and you're entitled to this, and it's just a trap. Anyway, this brand of Solomon's disobedience created problems years later for Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, 400 years later, they're still dealing with this stuff. In Ezra 9 and Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 13, <laughs> Nehemiah knew how to deal with people, did he not? He'd, so I struck them. I pulled out their hair. I flattened their tires. I mean, he just, he he's my kind of leader, although I don't want him to lead me. Uh, but I want to lead like him. So, I, uh, anyway, that 13th chapter of Nehemiah is just worth reading by itself. Anyway, uh, Solomon, I think, I think some of it wasn't that he was trying to imitate the surrounding eastern potentates. You know, all the kings do it that way. And then at the beginning, I don't think he was imitating them. I think he was trying to blow them away. What do you got in your harem? What, 10? 20? How about 1,000? I'm serious. I think that's what was hap- part of what was happening. He just, look, if I'm going to sin, I'm going to really sin. <laughs> he just went crazy. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Why? This is almost a, a, a psychosis. 
There's a madness that belongs to this at some point. And the world, the world is one Christian writer. I, this is a good time to read this to you. One Christian writer long since gone. The world is that collection of men in every age who live only according to the maxims of their time. The world lives according to the culture. That's what he's saying. And that's what Solomon, the culture is the kings have harems. My dad had, you know, I don't know, I don't remember off time, seven, eight wives. And he, he just, but many scholars like to say, yeah, but, you know, they were just political. No, they weren't, because if they were just political, he wouldn't have had 300 concubines. They didn't have political clout. David. Could you imagine David as an idolater? You, you can't. If you go by the scripture, you can't even think that David would have been burning incense to some fake God or allowing somebody to do it without wanting to do harm to that person, another covenant child that is. David's fall was passion of the flesh, not the spirit. Solomon, his, he's slowly crumbling and until this, of this great character until finally we have this 11th chapter That is a sad ending. Verse 2. From the nations of whom Yahweh had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Well, this is not an ethnic thing. This is a spiritual thing. Because if they converted, the marriage was for Rahab. She married a Jewish man. You know, she converted to Judaism. And it's the same for us today. If someone converts to Christianity, then you, the, the Bible smiles on that. Of this list of names that we had in verse 1, the Hittites are the only ones explicitly stated in the letter of the law in Deuteronomy 7, which I have open here, but I'm not going to read it because we're already late, and I don't know how much time we have left, I don't know, three, four hours but uh, so the Hittites, they're on that list. But the Jews understood the spirit of the law. The, the righteous Jews understood that. And the spirit of the law was anyone outside the covenant was off, period. They didn't have to be a Hittite. They could have been from anywhere. If they were not a, a believer in, in Yahweh, they were out. And... That is, Solomon knew that too. A Jew could marry a convert to Moses' law, but not outside of it. And Numbers 25 and Ezra 9 point that out, because there you have other people being barred, forbidden from marriage with the Jewish people, and they weren't part of that list. Here in verse 2, surely they will turn Away your hearts after their gods. Well, God is saying this prohibition is not just because, you know, I just like making rules. And it's sad, you know, even in churches, you know, you have rules because something has happened. Or we know it's going to happen and the other person hasn't figured it out yet. Well, we can't wait for them to figure it out. I mean, how about, a, how about just something simple that won't sting anybody? You know, suppose we had a rule. You can't play with matches uh, by, the, by the paper pile. And someone protests, why? I, why can't I? That when you strike it, it's so, that sound and smell of sulfur is so nice. Well, because it's going it, to fire, out of control, burn everything down. Oh, come on. 
So you make a rule. So we're not going to wait for you to burn everything down so we can say, see, I told you. And God is this way. God is saying, I'm not going to wait for you to figure it out. Here's what I would like. That's leadership. This is what I want. I mean, ideally, leadership is, hey, we, you know, get everybody's idea. But the final act, at the end of it all, the leader is saying, here's the direction we're going in. Uh, sink or swim, this is it. Anything other than that, you have mayhem. You have just, uh, you, you have a spastic approach to life. A two-headed anything is wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. If you come across a two-headed cow, you know something went wrong. And if you come across a two-headed leader, you got problems. Isn't that the, the God Janus amongst the Jews? He's facing both ways. Anyway, uh, wherever I was. Sure. Surely they will turn your hearts away from God. So uh, convert or be converted. Kill or be killed. That's the, the idea God's restrictions, again, not without reason. In fact, he tells Ezekiel, I have done nothing without a cause. God is not, uh, you know, whimsical. I was just in the mood. <laughs> a lot of people in hell went to hell that day. Why? Because God was just in the mood. Thank God he's not like that. That's why Jesus says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not. He said, I am a rock. I don't change. Anyway... Uh, the restrictions are not without reason. They have everything to do with morality, and morality has something to do with eternity. The two are joined together. Solomon clung to these in love. It's an imperfect love. It's a love that overrules God. It's a one thing to struggle. It's another thing to just completely sell it out. J. Vernon McGee. Now, I won't do his voice, but I want to quote what he's, his comment on this Solomon clung to these in love. J. Vernon McGee. Because if I don't say Vernon McGee and I just said it to you, maybe you'll raise an eyebrow. But if I say Vernon McGee, oh, okay, okay, it's good. He's, he's okay. He's smarter than you. <laughs> well, he is. He's also better off than me right now. Only for a little while. I'll catch up. <laughs> I think this is, says Vernon, the one place in Scripture where the word love can be changed to sex. Solomon clung to these insects. That's what it was. It wasn't love. You can't love a thousand people. I, just, I mean, not like that. You can agape a thousand people. We, 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 even, we even kind of look at that as a little crazy because when you see somebody, you know, the Pope, not our Pope, blessing, you know, the masses, you come on, give me a break. You, these guys could be felons and, and murderers, and many of them are, and you, bless you, my son. It loves a little bit more intimate than that. Anyway, Solomon enjoyed his lifestyle. That's what's going on. And he did cling to them. He wouldn't turn them loose. That's the idea. These intermarriages, again, not uh, against the race of the people, but the, the, the idolatry in the people. Deuteronomy 17, 17, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. Well, he broke both of those. We'll, we'll review those in a little bit. And again, when he broke a commandment, he went all, all out. Verse 3, And he had 700 wives. How many of you remember the names? Do you know? God... I mean, really, he has to have a, an aide there to say, okay, this is, uh, uh. Like, thank you. I couldn't remember. What number is she? Uh, this is crazy. And I, I think that God, when we come across this, he doesn't want us to applaud this and admire it. 
Uh, the men would have to be told that. The women are like, look, you don't need to give me any help in not liking what's going on here. This is slavery. Anyhow, uh, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Well, the team, 700 versus one. <laughs> Mathematically, it makes sense. Uh, not only was this a multiplication of wives, but they were foreign also. So that's not just, he keeps stabbing well, look, I already messed, I'm already wet. <laughs> what, what difference does it make? Uh, <clears throat> polygamy. There are still those who try to use the Bible to, I mean, the more, the more <laughs> Mormons and morons, there's a very thin line there in speaking about those. You just, I almost said, well, look at the morons. And it really wouldn't have been in need of correction. Still trying to justify polygamy. God had said, a man shall be joined to his wife, not his wife. So this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, not wives. And certainly, um, this was before the fall, but God knew what was coming. And God said that the two, not the multiple, shall be one flesh. This is upheld in the New Testament. Matthew 19.5, 1 Corinthians 6.16. It is upheld. Listen, men and women are equal. They're not identical. It was not, one's not inferior to the other. They have different roles. God has assigned these roles. And in the New Testament, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are edifying for me. Well, that leaves a lot of margin, a lot of space to get a lot of things done that you otherwise could not get done under a strict law. Christianity, Paul had the insight to know that, listen, Judaism it was the foundation of the church, but we have now built atop of that, but not according to our own understanding it has been given to us by God. And that's, can you imagine a New Testament without the apostles? There'd be no authority. It would just be, this guy said this, this guy said that. But the, authority, the apostles locked that down. When they spoke, that was it. There's just no changing it. And God designed it that way. And yet, yet you just get somebody that's going to come along and try to make women look inferior to men. Or you're going to have somebody else come along and try to make a woman one of the guys uh, Satan is the one that kills femininity, and Satan is the one that makes men feminine. Uh, who else could it be? Who else has got that great of an influence uh, over invisible things in an evil way? It's the devil. Um, well, I like C.S. Lewis said that he loved the sound of men laughing because there was just that there was something right about. The, the masculinity in its proper place. He didn't say a man laughing. He meant men together in camaraderie. Well, there are things that it goes, you know, we love to see children playing with each other peacefully. <laughs> We're not excited about it when one's trying to, when they're fighting or fussing, but uh, there are these things that are okay to like and to understand, but you would think that they're common sense, and they're not. We're living in a time where things that, boy, that is just not only wrong, it is devilish. 
tell a little child they need a sex change. Somebody ought to beat the snot out of somebody for thinking like that. There's no other cure. They should have, they should make me the czar of beating the snot out of people who do things like that. I mean, and I'm not using a newspaper. <laughs> what are you going to do with that stick? Go find a bigger one. That's what I'm going to do. I, I mean, it just after some to act so shocked or to protest and threaten life threatening. Oh, come on! All right, let me get. It. I try not. To, I don't want to talk about stupid culture. Other other generations have been more evil. This one has been stupid. Well, I don't know about more evil as evil. This one has been the stupidest one. When I say generation, I mean from a hundred whoever's alive buying into this junk. I'm not talking about one particular age group. Who would disagree with that? Who would have imagined it? Okay, this is a rant. This is a rant. <sighs> All right. These uh, princesses here, of course, um, we've already covered the political side of that. Uh, downsizing this, again, and keeping it in, in all this political, I think is wrong. Is more to it. 300 concubines. Uh, <laughs> they were not acquaintances. If... It's a thousand in a harem. How shallow. Um, I, I need to just uh, keep moving. And his wives turned his heart, turned away his heart here in verse 3. As God said it would happen, it has happened. And we are supposed to pay attention to this. This is not true. Uh, this is true not only with marrying or um, unevenly yoked relationships. It's, it's true of unbiblical thinking. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Therefore, uh, pardon me, I need to reread that. I'm still in my rant mode. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Does that not fit Solomon? Can you not say, Solomon, are you so foolish? Who's bewitched you? you, you God showed himself. You have four visions of God. God's speaking to you directly. Your kingdom was given to you by God. Everything that, that David handed to you was because of his relationship with God, a man after God's own heart. You began in the spirit. How is it, Solomon, that now you're being perfected by your own wisdom without God? These lessons, every one of them, have something to do with us. Verse 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of his father David. Well, it would help to remember this. As bad as Solomon is, and we're going to still get to more of it. There were other kings of the Jews who were far worse. I mean, Ahab. Uh, you just, for, for example, Manasseh. Uh, these men were monsters. Solomon wasn't going around, you know, mass killing and just things like that. But he, that doesn't make this acceptable. But it, it helps us get a little perspective on this, what is going on here. They... Uh, turned his heart after other gods, referring mostly to his tolerance 
as a, uh, mentioning that there should have been an intolerance, but he tolerated them. He, the, uh, if you walked up to Solomon and said, are you worshiping Molech? Do you believe he's God? He would, I, I, I have no doubt myself. He would say, of course not. But, you know, it, it works well with the wives. It keeps peace, keeps the tree. He has all these answers that are wrong answers. But I don't think he personally believed that these were genuine gods. Again, we go back to Galatians because Paul is dealing with this. He sets the churches up in this region. Those, there would be those that would come in back of him to try to undo his work. And these churches in the region of Galatia were falling for this. And so Paul writes the Galatian letter to deal with it. And he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in, excuse me, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So here in Solomon's day, he was disobeying. He is turning away. He was doing everything wrong, not talking about his heart, but his actions, which there is a connection, of course. Paul comes along and says, listen, this kind of stuff happens in the New Testament, too. You have people that try to, you know, mingle in the world and false ideas, things that are contrary to God, things that God has forbidden. And they try to make it sound as though it's wiser and better than God. Uh, I, I don't I believe the Bible is very clear. Women are not supposed to pastor men. They're not supposed to pastor. I believe that the scripture teaches that. But we have a society that will come along. And say, oh, that was for them back then. Yeah, but Paul dates it. He puts the time stasis since Adam and Eve. This is this is perpetual. And uh, there are those that will, will do that with other verses, too. They tried the homosexuals, try to say that, you know, they're homosexual Christians. Uh, the serial killers. <laughs> they, need to, they need to be, you know, hey, well, listen, we kill, we kill for Christ, okay? We're just thinning out the herd, and we're Christians, too. You see the insanity behind these, these, these statements. And so... Paul is saying to the Galatians, I'm amazed that you're turning away from the gospel. I, I can't believe it. You received Christ. You saw the grace. These other Johnny-come-latelys come up, and, and now you're following them. You were in the Spirit. You were following the Scripture and the apostles, and you sold it all away. There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, and that is to this day. It is an ugly fight. Whatever happened to this prayer of Solomon? Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. I think he meant that at the time he said it or else God would not have showed up. And he did. That is at the de dedication of the temple. But he drifted. It says here in verse 4, And his heart was not loyal to Yahweh his God, and his, as was the heart of his father David. And we've discussed this earlier the question I have looking at this is, did Solomon's poor devotional habit transfer to his son, Rehoboam? So a father can influence a son. Well, we all know that, just like a mother can. Will it be for good or bad? The saying, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Well, there's some truth in that. But, you know, when Bathsheba came to Solomon and said, hey, I have a favor to do for Adonijah, he didn't go for that. So that uh, saying is not 100%, but there's still that influence did Solomon's poor devotional habit 
influence his son Rehoboam? Yes. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that. First, uh, Second Chronicles 12, speaking of Rehoboam. And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek Yahweh. So we honor our mother and father, but we do not honor the dishonorable things that they may do. I don't mean the, you know, the nitpicking ones. I mean the ones that are, are moral and spiritual violations. A, a person, an individual has got to come to a place in their walk where Jesus is their savior personally, not because mom and dad say so, but because they've discovered that Jesus is the Lord. Everything's right with that. And so Jeroboam, he never developed. We're going to come to him next chapter. And, he, you know, he's one of the... He's one of the greatest fools in the Bible. He listened to his buddies more than the wise men, the men who were experienced. He just threw all their experience away and went with his, uh, his cronies. And what happened, the nation split, and it was a disaster. So let's review from Deuteronomy 17. Um, hey, look at that. Daylight saving time has not reached this clock. I have an hour left. I'm not lying. Do not return to Egypt, God said. The people were not to return to the land of bondage. Do not multiply horses. The military was not supposed to be invasive. In other words, so strong. And we're seeing this with the, Soviet, with the, with the revived Soviet Union under uh, Adolf Putin. Do not to multiply wives. The king was not to be divided in his devotions and his attention to God. Do not to multiply wealth. The king was not to be occupied with material gain. The king was to be dependent upon God, focused on God by faith, as was Moses, as was Joshua. Did, did Solomon really think, yeah, but those guys were lightweights. I'm a heavyweight. They had just, you know, a million slaves who just had bad manners and lived out in the desert and survived because of their leadership. But me, you know, I'm, I'm a lot smarter than that. I, I think some of that was there. As was the heart of his father, David, we have covered that. Psalm 16:4. their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offering, offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their name on my lips. Now, I know I've read that already in, in our study of Kings, but it's so good. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now, why would I read that? Is that a random verse? Has that anything to do with what we're talking about? Yes, because what sometimes happens to pastors and Christians alike is you get bored with Christianity. You get bored with the scripture. And when that begins to happen, if you don't see it and endure it, you will start looking elsewhere and you will start bringing in what some other person said that sounds so good and so sensitive and so right, but it, it, it's a step away from the scripture. It's moving forward without the word of God because you've grown weary of the word of God. For me, in, in my 30 years of ministry, there have been times where it's just, you know, I'm so familiar with the text that it's, it's hard to stay engaged. But I know this is where I need to be, and I'm not looking anywhere else. And so you won't hear me come up and quote the latest bestseller in Christian circles. And I have found if you stick to it, God revives. 
He comes along and he says, yeah, good. You, you hung in there all those years. And how about this? Boom. And I'll, I don't know, you may not agree. You may say, I have listened to your sermons. I'm not all that impressed. Well, I'm impressed that I'm still just, I love the word of God still. And Solomon, I think, got away from that. It, the word of God was no longer this special thing to him. Again, let us not grow weary while doing good. Verse 5 now, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Nilcom, uh, the abomination of the Amorites. Ammonites, Amorites, close phonetically, but different peoples. Anyway, uh, this Ashtoreth was uh, known by other names, Canaanite fertility goddess, Ishtar in Babylon, Venus by the Greeks, Aphrodite by the Romans. Uh, they just keep, you know, reinventing her. Ashtarte, Ashtarte is, is her original name. Some scholars believe that the Jews called her Ashtoreth by moving the words around a little bit, and it actually means shame. And to show their disdain for her, she became known as Ashtoreth amongst the Jews, whereas she was Ashtarte amongst the uh, other Semitic people. Uh, it's a hard one to prove, but there's you can't dis, uh, you can't dismiss it either. It's interesting because the Jews were in the habit of putting in those little zingers. We talked about Ezekiel when Ezekiel referred to the pagan gods. The, the Hebrew word is the dung gods, but the translators use the you know they don't say it that way when they should because that's exactly what he's calling them. In fact, it's a little bit more. Um, crass than, uh, than what I'm telling you. That's how intense it, the, their disdain for the idols were amongst the prophets. Anyway, uh, Milcom, an Ammonite form of Baal, 300 years later, this God is entrenched in Israel. Zephaniah 1.5, I've read this before. We've got five minutes left, I think, or ten. Um, so just thinking out loud, looking at the clock that's off, saying to myself, really, we should do have an hour, really should. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by Yahweh, but who also swear by Malcolm. Oh, I go to church, but I also, you know, believe in horoscopes or something like that. You, you can't, those two are irreconcilable. You, you can't, you can't do that. Um, this is what they were doing in those days because of Solomon bringing in the idols as he did. It was a royal, seriously, a royal endorsement. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not fully follow, the, uh, did not fully follow Yahweh as did his father David. Well, his sin was public. It was blatant. There was no denying it. The evidence was there. Where it says, and did not follow, fully follow Yahweh. He did not fully follow Yahweh. There's a glimmer of hope in that. that where I get the, what I told you, that I think if you said to, to Solomon, do you believe these gods are real? I believe he would have said, no way. Then why are you going ahead and violating the law? Well, because, you know, Moses lived back then, and we need to do it. I, I believe he would have had some goofy answer like that. Because we see people do it to this day. And our, I, I think, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. As did his father David, uh, of course. 
David did not follow those false gods. Verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Well, that hill east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus ascended. Um, it's uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 13. Then the king defiled, not, this is not Solomon, he's being spoken of here. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So the historian, a different guy, because this part is 100 years later, over 100 years later, he's looking back and he's saying, the people are still doing the things that Solomon imported. They're still at it. You can't just get this out. It has taken root. So, the tragedy of it all. Verse 8. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Um, He sponsored it. He subsidized it, paid for it, kept it going there in the land of God's people. It's very hard for us to stomach this. He had smarts and brains, and that's not enough. You can meet a person who's got smarts and brains, but they reject Jesus Christ, and they take down a lot of people with them. How many college professors, for example, have this this power over students who pay them to become idolaters? Uh, How many times do I say to a Christian going off to college, when you get that degree, don't let it go to your head, only to see it go to their heads. I've got the degree. I'm smarter than you. All the things you taught, they were wrong because my professors know better. And uh, what church do they pastor? Uh, what anointing is on them? Which ones of them are truly Christians? I could probably beat them all up anyway because I'm just like that. So... Dude, you might think that I have a slant towards violence. <laughs> well, it, it works sometimes. And, you know, some, it's frustrating. It's like, God, why can't we beat them up? And, of course, we know why. Um, and I, I joke about it because I don't really feel that way too much. My flesh does. My flesh is totally in disagreement. But the spirit is not. Well, we've run out of time. So many more things to say about all this. I hope I've not confused you especially with that whole rant episode. i close with this verse. I left out the part about Jezebel, whose horse-trampled body was, the dogs couldn't even finish her eating her. She was so disgusting. They left their hands in her skull. I said, you know what, that's enough. <laughs> she was that vile. She was a Sidonian princess that introduced idolatry on a large scale to the northern kingdom. Well, Solomon set the precedence for this over all the Jews. But again, if it was not him, it could have been someone worse and things could have been worse. 1 Kings 12, 28, therefore the king asked advice. This is, this is Jeroboam who will be the first king of the, nor- of the northern kingdom when it splits. He will lead the Jews into idolatry. 
Solomon had his wives be idolatrous in Israel's land. Jeroboam takes it to another level where he now brings idolatry to the Hebrew people themselves. Solomon did it to keep the peace with surrounding nations. Jeroboam will do it to keep control over his people. In both cases, we have an example of those who come along and think they know better than God's word. 1 Kings 12, 28, this is Jeroboam. Therefore, the king asked advice. This is when the people were still going to Jerusalem to worship from the north. Made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. You're going to say, what Bible do you have? None. I just know parts of the Bible, and I change it when it works for me. Well, this has been a hot night for me. Not a (laughs) tough section of Scripture to, to see such a great man of God just become such a fool. Let's pray. Our Father, you know all things, and we we take great comfort in that. We pray that we learn lessons from this, and we apply them. We pray, we pray that we, as Paul said, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. May that be said of each and every one of us. May we take this stuff very seriously. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.